So I got to know what was the Chicago food stop? Nice. Because I was definitely actually intending to give these guys a uh, unsolicited plug on the air at the end of the night because I did not have time in between games. Uh, at the end of the night, I stopped at a place called 302 Wheaton. It's uh, right on one of the main drags in Wheaton itself. And they have a great selection of beers on tap and a very quality selection of possible hamburgers. I had a chorizo burger, so it was you know, beef and chorizo is great. I have the I have the receipt right here in front of me, of course, because I need the receipt. But I would definitely recommend uh, I would definitely recommend anybody who's in the area in, you know, DuPage County, go ahead and check out 302 Wheaton at 302 West Front Street, Wheaton, Illinois. That's the unsolicited plug. It was a really good burger. And to be honest with you, I just felt like all day, what I really love to do is just to be able to walk the sidelines at games which I have often been tied to the press box, and we've talked about this before, you know, updating scores of other games that I'm not actually at. Um, I got a chance to be down there, got a chance to feel it up close and personal, take some pictures, walk back and forth, get some sun. It was just a great day of football, which makes me feel like, yeah, I could totally do another 13 weeks of this. This, this might actually be doable. <laughs> football fans it's now time for the d3football.com around the nation podcast here are your hosts pat coleman and greg thomas it's the d3football.com around the nation podcast your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football we welcome you to podcast number 286 that's season 15 episode 8 or if you prefer it's the podcast for september 20th of 2021 i'm pat coleman the editor and publisher of d3football.com i'm greg thomas i write around the nation the column uh, you know, Pat, good podcasts don't happen by accident. It takes complete buy-in from the team and an unwavering commitment to the process. And that's what we do here. We trust the process, we stick to the script, and the results take care of themselves. They do. And if, you know, if you get those results and they take care of your, themselves, then you can complain about all of the lack of respect that you want, right? But you got to get those results. Regardless of who's taking care of them, you've got to get those results. And, well, I mean, it's, it seems silly for me to have spent any time saying those things. Why don't I basically go have Jeff Thorne say these exact same things? We're going to send this to the North Central head coach. This is his address to his team as he's talking to them immediately after the Little Brass Bell game on Saturday night, in which his team defeated Wheaton by the score of 20-7. to Gentlemen, words can't audibly express how I feel about you. I'm so damn proud of you guys. That is that is an unbelievable football team. That is the best defense you will face all season. Yes, sir. And it's one of the damn best offenses we're going to face all season. All right? So we've now put ourselves in a position, as we've talked about. What was the new Chase the Lion dream? Old guys, what was it? Who do we want to be? Wheaton. No, we want to be the new mouth. We want to be the new mouth, the new machine, the, new, the one that shows up every year in the, in the semis. And maybe we'll start getting some freaking respect. Maybe, maybe the two teams we beat last year won't be ranked ahead of us anymore. If I remember right, one of them we beat by 28 freaking points. Yes? Respect. You earned it last year, and you just confirmed it tonight. Let me tell you something. We won a national championship last year for a reason. A, we were a team. We believed. We saw the vision. We chased down the lion. But, gentlemen, we won a national title last year. Our offense was great. But, man, our defense does not get the credit it deserves. Because they didn't give up more than 15 points after the Mount Union game. And look what they freaking did tonight. Seven. First drive. And then we shut it down. Our conference coaches said we weren't the best team in the league. Every week, the goals want to know. Yes, sir. But every week, just as I said in there tonight, it's not how we not just winning. It's how we're going to win. Greg, there's about two more minutes of this. 
and and I should say this too. So there's two more minutes of this, and then uh, one of his players notes that uh, the Wheaton players are standing uh, over about 40 yards away, patiently waiting for them to come over and shake hands. And at that point, everybody breaks the huddle and they all go over and shake hands. Very classy move by Wheaton to wait around. Um, North Central very justifiably had a lot to celebrate. But going back to what uh, Jeff Thorne said, I mean, all I can say is, as I look back at my ballots from the preseason and from the first two weeks, I did not have North Central ranked behind anyone that they beat in 2019. You and I, obviously, on the record as saying uh, Wheaton was our number one. Wheaton beat them in 2019. I feel justified uh, of, of having had all this time them one and two. I just swapped them around this week, but, uh, you know, obviously we've talked about it multiple times. Those top five were in all sorts of orders coming into the week. They are. And I, you know, I can't say the same about uh, not having North central ranked below teams that they beat last year. Um, I did make a no rudder adjustment for North central in my 2021 balloting. Uh, but there's really no question now in my mind, that North central is the number one team in the division. Uh, their defense was outstanding again. I talked about that last week. Uh, Coach Thorne talked about it as well. And as we'll talk about in a minute, I think that North Central has answered the quarterback question pretty definitively. Yeah. Yeah. Luke Lanon looked really, really good on uh, on Saturday. Uh, you know, he brought out some stuff in the offense that we had. You know, it's not something that we've seen uh, North Central run since, you know, maybe that run to the quarterfinals back at the beginning part of the decade. In my head, that's like in 2013, the 41 to 40 game in the snow at Mount Union. Um, you know, uh, it was a game on Saturday in which, you know, so I talked a little bit with Thorne one on one afterwards and just had audio problems all up and down everywhere. So I'm just going to summarize some of the things he said. Talked about really unveiling this guy his freshman quarterback you know they hadn't really had uh lane and run the ball in their opener against aurora you know so because of the uh 64 to 7 nature of that game they were able to keep all of that stuff off of uh, film but it you know i mean obviously wheaton knew he was fast you know they knew of him uh and you know Lane is a guy who's apparently had uh, major league baseball scouts out to look at him in north central because of his speed on the base pad so it was known that he had speed and that was part of his game but how that translates to the football field is always something you have to see live before you can really figure out how fast is that guy really? That guy was really pretty fast. He was, and I think he was the difference maker. I think, you know, Wheaton had a really good plan to, you know, stifle Ethan Greenfield. They did a great job against that. Um, they really did a great job against uh, North Central's pass game. For most of the game, the fourth quarter, um, North Central hit a couple of big passes to Andrew Kaminsky. Um, but when they started throwing in the Luke Lanin run wrinkle, that was the one thing that Wheaton hadn't seen. And these are two teams that know each other so, so, so well that when you find something new that they haven't seen before, it stands out and it can be really effective. And it was for North Central. I, I used to hear, you know, and this is now maybe 20 years ago or even 25 years ago, talking to coaches uh, you know, defensive coaches, especially, of course, who would say that, you know, their scheme or their defense kind of struggles when you're facing a mobile quarterback. And now, of course, in this day and age, right, you know, uh, the traditional drop back passer guy who stands in the pocket, blah, 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 blah. Those are not nearly as common as they used to be. And, you know, even if there, you know, even if there are a number of, of those guys still at this level, I mean, if you're a guy who's, uh, you know, a defensive coordinator and you're watching, you're watching the NFL, you're watching a D one game, you're, you're a film junkie, right? Like I, I assume most, uh, most coaches are, um, you're eventually going to see somebody who's scheming up, uh, against a, a mobile quarterback and doing a pretty good job. So I don't, you know, and I am not the X's and O's guy. I understand that you were not the X's and O's guy either. Um, and I know Keith McMillan watched about, uh, the last 10 minutes of that game. So maybe we can text him and get his thoughts on it. But, uh, you know, I don't know if what, Wheaton does necessarily struggles against that sort of thing. Um, all I know is that they had a little bit of trouble containing Lane on Saturday night. Obviously, they got to him three times, but he also had, you know, a, a big 17 yard run for a first down. And he is going to be a guy who's going to move the chains with his feet much more than Brock Rudder ever was. Yes. And I think for Wheaton, it's just, it's one more option that you have to deal with. And Wheaton's defense is so good. Sometimes it seems like they have 12 guys on the field. North Central ransom option. Maybe they need a 12th guy to have a spy on 
Luke Lane in as well, because, you know, Wheaton did as good a job as you can to cover all of those other guys, Greenfield, Kamensky, Williams, Hardy. And then there was one guy that they didn't have uh, that they didn't have an assignment for. And it was Luke Lane. Hardy broke free for a, uh, a deep ball over the middle uh, for a 44 yard touchdown pass, uh, t- a catch and run. That was how they got on the board early in the second quarter. Um, you know, Kaminsky, we didn't hear his name called much. He wasn't able to look in his direction very much early on. And then, you know, started about the second quarter or so, uh, began to hit him a little more. And then, of course, you know, big plays down the stretch. And he ended up with six catches for 134 yards. I think the it's not the biggest play of the day uh, for Kaminsky. Uh, it is the some of those are the biggest plays of the day for Kaminsky. But I'm going to do the whole storytelling thing. Say, but really the biggest play uh, for Kaminsky on the day was him running across the field and taking the trophy when it was handed to him by Wheaton coach Jesse Scott. And I want to. I asked him about that, and here's what he had to say. It was just something that I've dreamed of here for four years. Haven't beat, haven't been able to beat this great football team. But just going over there, going to grab the bell, it bring back, it brought back kind of the same feeling as holding that national championship trophy. This is the biggest game of the year in Division Three football, no matter what conference. And for us to come away with it and bring the bell back home just means the world to me and my brothers. Well, that answered the next question I was going to ask. I wanted you to compare that to winning Walnut and Bronze. It's, it's the same thing. It's we put in so much work just for these guys every year, and for them to come out and beat us the last three years, and for us to finally take it away on their home turf with all those fifth-year guys who came back after pandemic is just a dream come true. Yeah, and this really does complete the circuit for North Central. You know, the run this team has been on since losing to Wheaton in the Little Brass Bell game in 2019 really is remarkable. Uh, while the Cardinals sure weren't saying, yeah, but the bell during the celebration in Shenandoah, uh, this one has to be extra sweet for all of these players that were there in Shenandoah at the Stag Bowl and now have this trophy back to fill out the trophy case back in Naperville and kind of complete that whole thing like they did all of it now right I mean you know the guys who were seniors on that north central squad up until Saturday night had never had the bell one guy talked about never having seen it before I just enjoyed trying to keep up with Kaminsky as he's running a full tilt to the opposite side of the field so you talk about having a spy right what I was doing for the last couple minutes of the game was you know with uh once uh, North Central scored to go up by two touchdowns with a buck 36 to go. I just plant myself in front of the bell, knowing that somehow, some way, this thing is going to get transferred to the other side, and I want to be there to see that happen. Um, and I was expecting to get, you know, maybe a little bit of video, maybe some pictures. He takes it, and he grabs it and runs. And I am, I'm not in great shape. I'm in okay shape. I'm a fairly healthy 48-year-old man. Um and I had already done some running up and down that sidelines because if you're taking photos and like the field switches quickly, you got to go, you know, 40 or 50 yards at a full out sprint. Um, so I felt like I was loose, but I'm just running across the field with a camera around my neck and also holding the phone and also trying to avoid North Central's photographer who was like in the shot for like the whole freaking time. Um, but just to get the picture of that celebration, that minute of video that uh, is pretty... Uh, well distributed now on Twitter. That was a uh, that was a lot of fun just to see that exuberance. A bunch of North Central fans there. You know they filled those visitor stands at Wheaton, uh, and there were four thousand seven hundred twenty seven in attendance officially. Um, people lined up all across the the sidelines as well. There's not nearly enough seats on the Wheaton visitors sidelines to hold all the North Central fans who were very interested. They were very interested and very into it. And I just love even though, you know. If you're not still watching a minute into that video, there's some really great stuff there at the end. It was just a, it was a lot of fun, and it really was great to see there, see it, and be there in person. There is, and it, you know, we were we saw them celebrate the championship in Shenandoah, and you know, I watched your video online, and I mean, they celebrated that almost almost the same way. Uh, it was yeah. really pretty incredible. How I mean, you can see how much that game meant to them. Absolutely. So big game for them. Obviously, you know, these teams go on and they face uh, North Central faces Augustana this week and Wheaton uh, faces North Park. So, uh, you know, the question will always be, how do you follow that intensity and that sort of thing? But, um, you know, both of these teams have uh, eight more games and then, you know, maybe uh, one or both of them will go to the playoffs. Certainly looks like they both should at the rate uh, they were looking on Saturday. So that was the big news of the night. The big news of the afternoon came on a game where I'm not sure how much attention we were necessarily expecting to have to pay to it. If I, so 
um, I've talked about having a scoreboard help person, and in order to give this person some kind of uh, priority as to what games should be checked in on and how often, uh, I don't know if this was a priority two game or even a priority three game. I don't even remember if I had this on the list. So, oh, here's the list. Week three priorities. It was a uh, it was a priority three game. Just get the halftime score and the final score. That clearly, this game did not uh, live up to that advanced billing that I gave it. No, I mean Muhlenberg has really had the the run of the Centennial Conference over the last couple of years. Um, and you know, Michael Natkowski gets most of the spotlight for the run that Muhlenberg has been on. But the Mules' defense has been among the division's best in the last couple of years. In 2019. Muhlenberg's defense limited uh, nine teams to under 10 points in a game and were seventh in the nation in third down percentage defense. Ursinus, by the way, is the team that uh, upset Muhlenberg. Ursinus turned all of that around on Saturday. They scored 42 points against the Mules, and they really dominated third downs offensively. They converted 10 of their 16 chances. Um, the Bears had Muhlenberg's defense on the back foot for most of the game. Um, Natkowski did fill up the box score, as he typically does, but the Bears' defense did intercept him three times on the game and they held their own uh, defensively as well, repelling Muhlenberg's last two drives of the game to hang on to that 42 to 35 win. Yeah. One of the reasons that we did a feature on Natkowski this week was a, we were already doing a, a bunch of features on quarterbacks, just kind of the way the randomness uh, of the stories came up. I was like, well, let's what's the, who's like the best quarterback that we haven't talked about in a while. And the reason we haven't is because, that Muhlenberg defense has been so amazing, right? But, you know, I mean, you know, Feaster's not around anymore. A bunch of these guys, you know, graduate. That is what people do in Division III. Um, and, you know, they had a full year plus off. And, you know, that is, I expected him to have to carry them a little bit more this year. I did not expect that it was going to have to be to the point of he was going to have to have his team score seven touchdowns in order to win the game. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that, you know, maybe we, maybe we missed a little something on our sinus as well. Um, when they played uh, Johns Hopkins last week and Johns Hopkins has been wiping everybody out by the way, but our sinus went, our sinus was 14, 14 with Johns Hopkins last week. And then Johns Hopkins went bananas in the second quarter. So um Maybe we didn't miss something on our sinus after all. And, you know, they just had a great game. Again, our sinus defense, and we're going to talk about some of that defense in a little bit. Their defense did a great job on Natkowski. They limited him. They turned him over a few times. And, you know, maybe, maybe like you said, Muhlenberg's defense reloading a little bit. And they're really going to rely on Natkowski to bounce back and keep them in contention for the Centennial Conference and, and a playoff spot possibly. That game back in week two, uh, Ursinus with a key fumble late in the second quarter that uh, led uh, Johns Hopkins to be able to tack on one of those scores and make it 42 to 14 at the half. That sounds very familiar to the final 90 or so seconds of the first half this past Saturday at Whitewater, in which, you know, Barry was. So this I'm talking about the Barry uh, game at UW Whitewater, and for like the first quarter and a half or so, Barry is, um, you know, they're not stopping Whitewater, but they're making Whitewater work for it. I mean, Whitewater, you know, is certainly capable of going up and down the field on all sorts of people, but you know, the first three scoring drives for Whitewater, for example, ten plays, eighty yards, four minutes, seventeen seconds, eleven eighty-one, five fifty-four. Uh, nine plays, 73 yards, 257 that ends in a field goal. It's 16 nothing at that point, but you know, Barry is doing some is doing some things and is doing some things well. Uh, Devin Greer, the cornerback, uh, is doing a really good job on uh, Ryan Wisniewski and and that sort of thing. And then it just like fell apart. Uh, two fumbles for Barry, uh, literally on consecutive snaps. Uh, and Whitewater, you know, turns those into touchdowns right away, and it goes from sixteen nothing to thirty nothing uh, in the in a blink of an eye, and very deflating going into the locker room. Yeah, you know, and that happened a little bit earlier in this game than it did uh, the previous week against Salisbury, but similar feels, you know, where um, Whitewater's opponent really holding their own, kind of hanging on, keeping keeping Whitewater out of the end zone, away from scoring explosively early in the game, but. 
whitewater, they're so resilient. They're so relentless. Eventually, I mean, if you make a mistake and give them a short field, forget it. They're going to be in, and then the score is going to get away from you pretty quickly. Uh, Max Myler, 16 to 26 for 256 yards and three touchdowns. Wisniewski ended up with six catches for 54. I mean, the, the numbers offensively don't jump off the page. Uh, obviously in large part because you know they had two touchdowns handed to them uh, in pretty quick fashion and Barry doesn't get on the board until 340 left in the game and I was going into the game thinking 42-7 and so we got 39-7 and about what I think one would expect Um, but again you know we talked about it and I talked about it in the podcast last week I'm just happy to see Barry step up and play those teams and talking with Tony Koncheski before the game, because I did not have time to talk with anybody after the game. I had to dash. Um, but he was talking about, you know, you know, they've, they've played Mary Harden Baylor in the playoffs. Uh, they've played St. Thomas in the playoffs. Obviously St. Thomas no longer part of the, uh, part of the continuum. Um, they are kind of working their way through playing some of these teams. And, you know, if, uh, I don't know when Mount Union has an opening on its schedule, next but they often seem to have that uh week one game scheduled out about five or six years in advance so maybe about 2028 or so then you see that Barry Mount Union game but I I think they have a and and Koncheski's been on the national committee he has seen these teams he has seen these venues he has seen what it you know takes to step up in uh quality and for your program and I, I think he's trying to do that I mean and I think it, if you look at the way the voters looked at it, the voters basically, you know, they they knocked Barry down a spot, basically. Uh, they lost maybe 36 or some points in the poll or something like that, but not a, you know, it, it wasn't an outlandish amount. No, and I think and I think really for Barry, the program, that's what these games are for. It's for Barry to get out of that little sub-regional that they find themselves in in the playoffs, right? Like, Barry's path to the second round is almost always going to go through Mary Harden Baylor, at least for as far as we can see in the future. Right. As long as Mary Harden Baylor seems to be a thing. Yes. Correct. And so, you know, that's the goal. Like that's the, that's the next step for that program. They can win the SAA. They've done that. They've gone to the playoffs and they, you know, they had, they did get a trip up to Minnesota for a game, but most of the time, you know, under, the way that we construct brackets currently, they're going to go play Mary Harden Baylor in the first round. And that's, that's gotta be, that's gotta be the bar for that team. If they want to get any further than they've gone. This edition of the D three football.com around the nation podcast is produced. Thanks to the assistance of you, our listener. Now I feel like I'm on a pledge break. I do not have a tote bag to give you or to offer you, but we are very thankful for the people who uh, you know stepped up and donated money for the back in that 2020 thing where you know there wasn't a football season. That was a big effing deal to us. It is a very significant hit to our revenue and our top line, let alone our bottom line. I got this question a lot uh, at Wheaton this weekend, and I actually got a business card from somebody. Um, so I have a, a follow-up uh, call or email to make. But, you know, how are we doing? Um, and we're doing okay. And thanks to those donations and thanks to the people who are our Patreon subscribers by going to patreon.com slash D3 sports. And we know a couple people have added in the course of the past couple weeks. We're very thankful about that. So thank you for that. Um, you know, it is that kind of steady, small amount of money from uh, each individuals or sometimes large amounts of money from some individuals per month that helps us budget for things over the course of a year. And in a year where we did not have ad revenues on the pages because there wasn't us there weren't scores so people weren't coming to see the scoreboard or the top 25 or anything like that it was very helpful to have that now that things are coming back we are beginning to see some of those things begin to flow again but it's not uh it wouldn't have been possible for us to be here if you guys hadn't stepped up over the course of the previous year to make that happen thanks to all those patreon subscribers that's why that's why we're able to come back for this fall season uh that's why pat is able to make a, a double dip trip through uh Wisconsin and Chicagoland to get um, on site for coverage of those big games. It's why we have great, uh, great articles like we had during QB week. Our articles with uh, from Brian Lester and Joe Sager this week were fantastic. 
And that's the content that we get to do this year because of you all. Thank you so much. Join us at patreon.com slash d3sports. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Game ball. Game ball. It's time for game balls, and my game ball is going to go to North Central cornerback Jake Beasley. Beasley, great game on Saturday. You know, what, all he did was break up five passes? That's not all he did, but (laughs) that was a lot of things. Yeah, five. You see a five in the passes broken up column. That uh, is something that really uh, jumps out at you. Um, You know, he got beaten once early in the game. Spencer Peterson went up really big for a uh, touchdown catch, and that's a guy who's like a... You know, he's also a basketball player for Wheaton. He's got ups and he's got height. Um, but for goodness sake, not much was done on, uh, you know, on Jake Beasley after that. Just an emblematic of the entire defensive effort overall for North Central. I mean, North Central broke up 10 of those passes by the uh, by Wheaton offense. I mean, Wheaton, 23 of 42 passing is, you know, I mean, that's respectable. That's not something you look at that and say, oh, they had a bad day. But if it was... 23 of 32 you'd say had a great day or if it was 33 for 42 we're probably flipping the script and then talking about you know someone like Ryan Schwartz who had a great game on the um, on the Wheaton defense or Dallas McRae uh, who had a, a couple of tackles for loss and, and seven tackles but uh, you know it is uh, again this defensive battle they hold them to seven points zero points after the first five minutes of the game um, and Jake Beasley big big part of that and that is why that guy gets my game ball yeah you, you know pat you don't see five pbus in the box score very often because usually after <laughs> yeah. two or three you stop going there it's true they did keep going there they they saw That's... something they liked i i don't know what because beasley kept knocking the ball on the ground but um yeah they kept um, trying it one of them at the end when uh you know even to deny wheaton the respectability score that uh, that they had an opportunity to get at the end of the game. Uh, Beasley knocks away a pass intended for Peterson in the end zone. And, you know, just uh, a great, uh, great performance by him. Obviously, that's a guy whose name you should already know out there. But now you do if you didn't before because he's getting one of these mythical game balls. All right. It is awards night, Pat, as we as we uh, give these away. Um, my game ball is going to Ursinus first year defensive back, Aaron Anderson in the third quarter of Ursinus's 42 to 35 upset win over Muhlenberg. Anderson stepped in front of a Michael Natkowski screen pass and raced 42 yards for a touchdown that would put the bears up 28 to 14 in the fourth quarter with the mules four yards away from taking a two score touched or two score lead and effectively ending the Ursinus upset bid. Anderson intercepted a tip pass in the end zone, this time returning the ball 87 yards back all the way to his own 13-yard line. This is how it was called on Mule TV. Mule's trying to punch it in. Nakowski back to throw, surveys the field. That one is tipped and intercepted and back the other way. One man really to beat across midfield. The 40, the 30, cuts back inside the 20. And he's going to be tackled inside the 15-yard line. That is Anderson once again. Aaron Anderson is second interception of the day. Ursinus punched it in from there, and the defense would not allow another Muhlenberg first down for the remainder of the game. The Bears leave Allentown with the season's first uh, top-10 upset. Venturing a little further afield for the Off the Beaten Path highlight. I got to say, actually, this Off the Beaten Path little clip sounds exactly like my run was on Saturday morning. I'm, I'm not like training for a marathon or anything this year, but I still like to go for a run if I'm traveling. And that was definitely the case this week. I just finished running from my hotel through the Whitewater campus around the Perkins Stadium playing field. And I impulsively decided to take a paved path rather than the whole plan that I had made to try to get to, you know, where I was going thinking, I was thinking I'm going to get, you know, something more interesting, right? This is a path. It must go somewhere pretty cool. Uh, it turned out I was like headed the wrong way altogether. So I get off the path. I go down a hill. There's this path that's like mode. It's like, yeah, I, I assume if I think about it, it's probably mode for like snowmobile path or something like that. It's big wide path. So I'm going through this grass until I can head east again to the edge of campus to get where I'm going. So long story short, I'm running through this grass, then some reeds, and then I realize, wait a minute, that thing that looks like a wooden boardwalk next to me actually looks like it's probably a dock. 
And then about 20 feet later, I am in some pretty muddy territory with no way through. This is totally like a pond that is like mostly but not completely dried out. If you're like Facebook friends with me or if you follow me on Strava, which I don't recommend, I'm not very I'm not very good or fun or fast at running. Uh, you can still see that this path that I ran is like directly into what is marked as a pond on the map. That's not my highlight. Instead, I'm looking at Lewis and Clark beating Whittier 66 to 14 on Saturday. We talked earlier in the podcast season about Beloit and Grinnell and Kenyon and a handful of similar schools having larger rosters this year after an extra year of recruiting. That is not what's going on over at Lewis and Clark. They have a nice roster of 69 players listed this year, which is right on par with the previous three seasons. If you remember, former Linfield coach Jay Losey returned to D3 with the Pioneers in 2015, and the rebuilding process has been pretty slow for a program which went full Grinnell in 2005. They felt they called off their season after just four games. But in 2019, if you remember that long ago, Lewis and Clark went four and five. They won three conference games, and manhandling Whittier is a pretty positive sign, I think, for more of those types of good things to come in 2021. Deontay Navarrete, if I pronounce it correctly, could be Deontay Navarrete, could be many other things. One of those is probably correct. Uh, he's the name to remember, however it's pronounced, from Saturday, because he ran for 163 yards and four touchdowns, three of those touchdowns coming in the first quarter. Maybe Lewis and Clark went, no, Grinnell went full Lewis and Clark. Yeah, I guess so. You're right. It, it does go in that direction. And I was practically going full Lewis and Clark, just trying to cut my path through uh, some part of Whitewater's campus that I'd never been on before. For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I'm going to Rockford, Illinois, where there might not be an unidentified swamp, but there was overtime drama between Eureka and Rockford. Rockford scored with 35 seconds left in regulation to tie the game, but had what would have been the game-winning extra point blocked. Eureka scored on the first play of overtime and took a seven-point lead. On Rockford's overtime possession, the Regents scored a touchdown, but after missing three extra points on the day, they opted to go for two to win. Rockford quarterback Jalen Ray had thrown eight touchdown passes on the afternoon, but this corner fade for two points had just a hair too much juice on it and landed incomplete as the Red, Devil, Red Devils hang on for a 58-57 to 57 win. Eight touchdowns and that's not your stat? That's not my stat. Good. I needed another one of those to fit into that thing, so thank you. Surprise! My most surprising result from Saturday... I mean, you know, other than that game in Allentown is Alma defeating Anderson 51 to two. So, you know, that is something that shouldn't happen to an offense as potent as Anderson's. So I looked into it. There's a reason why uh, Anderson quarterback Tyson Harley got uh, his bell rung as he was the uh, passer in a roughing the passer call on the Ravens second possession of the day. And then a few plays later on that same possession, he was knocked out of the game on a second rough hit from an Alma defensive lineman. I'm looking at you, Kevin Neas. It's not uh, it's not rock hard turf anymore, but I was thinking about you because one of those guys was number 91. Anyway, no, oh, after that, Anderson managed just 91 yards of total offense. And well, it did not go well. 14 tackles for loss and five interceptions for the Scots as Alma won in surprising fashion, 51 to two. By the way, just watching this game, Tyson Harley I he's listed at like 6'3", 260. That guy is big. It is hard to rough that guy and they did it twice in the span of like five snaps he's a big dude tyson harley in our uh preseason 20 questions was my pick to lead the nation in uh passing yards per game i don't know that i expected anderson to win a ton of games but man i thought that offense would be fun slinging it all over the hcac we hope tyson's okay we hope he can get back on the field soon um and we hope anderson can get back to throwing up 40 and 50 points a game just for funsies funsies is fun that's right um let's see my most surprising result uh this week in the non-muhlenberg edition is carol defeating illinois wesleyan by a score of 34 to 33 carol was picked in the cciw preseason poll in basically a three-way tie for last with north park and elmhurst uh, the pioneers have responded by opening this season 2-0 and knocking off one of the cciw's perennial challengers the Titans did not have an answer for Carroll Whiteout Austin Eichstadt. Eichstadt caught 12 passes for 229 yards and two scores, including the go-ahead score with 10-22 to play. Illinois Wesleyan had a shot to win with a 30-yard field goal as time expired, but Andrew Stang's attempt was pushed right of the target. This is a benchmark win for Carroll in the CCIW, easily their best result since joining the league in 2016. For Illinois Wesleyan, they're now 0-2 to start this season, 
And the Titans have some work to do to steady that ship before they get into uh, the heart of that CCIW schedule. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week is Washington and Lee running for 400 yards in the first half of a 63-7 to win against Guilford. You know, when you run the option and you run it as well as WNL ran it on Saturday, leading 42 to nothing at the break, what do you do then in the second half to run out the clock? Throw the ball? Well, if you're WNL, you basically empty the living daylights out of your bench. 15 players got carries en route to a 553-yard rushing performance in the win, including some pretty eye-popping individual numbers, such as Alex Wirtz picking up 122 yards and a touchdown, on three carries, and then Stephen Murren running for three touchdowns and 116 yards on just six carries. Very effective afternoon for WNL. All right, so uh, my stat of the week, I'm going to go to Cleveland, where Westminster bounced back from their week one loss to Mount Union with a very important 34-12 to win at Case Western Reserve in their pack opener. The Titans forced Drew Saxton into a career-high five interceptions on the evening. That's not my stat. None bigger than the first-year defensive back Bryce Butler's fourth-quarter interception. With the Spartans threatening to get within one score midway through the fourth quarter, Butler picked off Saxon at the goal line and returned the ball 100 yards. Pat, that's the whole length of the field for a Titans score and ended Case Western Reserve's last real shot to win this game. Uh, Butler finished the game with a Westminster record-tying three interceptions. Not quite the full McMillan. He also had the 100-yard pick six to seal the game and that is my stat of the week. I don't know if you know this. I know you do know this. I don't know if all the listeners know this. That ties the NCAA record for longest interception return for a touchdown by any player in college football because unlike uh, they do in the NFL, we do not give people yards for yards into the end zone in which they started and ran out. So they are, you are capped by rule at 100 yards on an interception return for a touchdown. Like the other Westminster on Saturday, this is the one from Fulton, Missouri. They had a pretty interesting game as well. So the Blue Jays took a 30-9 lead into the fourth quarter at Sewanee before the Tigers turned it on. They scored three fourth-quarter touchdowns. The Tigers needed an extra point to tie, but they fumbled a snap in a heavy rainstorm in the middle of the fourth quarter. So Sewanee punted on its next drive. Then they blocked a Westminster punt and started out in excellent scoring position, setting up this field goal attempt with 13 seconds to play. But down 21 game on the line field goal coming up here 38 yard attempt for Brody Palmer from the left hash now he's got the leg to get it there snaps a good one kick is up it's on the way no good wide left Brody Palmer had made a 43-yarder earlier in the game. The difference in this game ends up being an extra point, but it's not really that one that we uh, that we talked about in the fourth quarter. We have to go back to Sewanee's first touchdown for this back in quarter number two. The Tigers come out with the old swing and gate, and, well, here's the call on that. Nope, they're going to try to go for two. And the pass is intercepted. What a play call. 22, Anthony going and back what with an, it. Yep. What an absolute amazing piece of instinct right there. Westminster senior Robert Anthony literally stepped into the middle of an option pitch, and then he was gone. No chance to get him, and instead of 8-7 Sewanee, it was 9-6 Westminster, and final score ended up being that 30-29. to That's one way to get the defensive two-point conversion, or you could just pick up a ball in the end zone and run with it. Apparently. That also happened this weekend. Yeah, as I read the rule, and we're talking about Wabash Allegheny, as I read the rule, that should not uh, that should not be accepted. And as I'm, uh, I watched that, uh, I watched that clip, and like three of uh, three members of the officiating crew, are like standing there, very intentionally looking at the ball in the end zone, uh, waiting for. I, I don't know. They, I think they all thought that it should be live, and I, you know, I'm not super good at reading that rule book because it's convoluted as f, but it seems like. That should have been a dead ball because it's supposed to be a dead ball if it hits the end zone. That's why you play until somebody blows the whistle. I suppose. Here's the other thing. When it's appropriate, blow the whistle. And we didn't even talk about officiating in one of those games that I was at. Whole nother story. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. 
Now is the time of the podcast when we go to Twitter. You know how this works. This is typically Sunday late afternoon, or in this case, really early evening or late evening. We put out that signal on Twitter when it's time for you to start dumping some questions into our inbox. You did so. This is uh, at Nicholas A. Jones asking, what amount of margin of victory would it take for Mary Harden-Baylor or Harden-Simmons to make a big impact on the current ranking? We're talking about their game coming up this weekend. Uh, Currently, number two, Mary Harden-Baylor against number seven, Harden-Simmons. I very much personally am trying to be very careful. And if you listened to the Wheaton Halftime Show on Saturday, I did the same thing. I'm careful to try not to influence the voters by saying something specifically that I'm not even sure that there is a... I would certainly wouldn't be able to put a number on it. I just know that, man... You'd have to say this thing is as tight as the rusted lug nuts on a 55 Ford. How much work I did to find that drop like five or six years ago, I am certainly happy to use that thing again. Margin of victory to make a big impact? I mean, the thing is when you're up in the two or six or seven area, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to move really far. Like points don't move around very fluidly at that, at the top, you know, if Mary, like if Mary Harden Baylor were to beat Harden Simmons in like a 53 to three game in the way that they beat a Southwestern or something like that, maybe, maybe you see, some votes switch back and Mary Harden Baylor goes back up to number one. Um, maybe it doesn't take that much. I don't know. For me, like I want to watch the game on Saturday. I want to see those teams play. I want to see how they match up. I want to see who executes in that environment. Um, and it'll be nice to compare it with the fresh memory of North Central and Wheaton from this weekend to really get an idea of how all of those teams sort of play in that big stage uh, together. Yeah, I mean, the one thing about the North Central Wheaton game is those were two teams that were clearly in that top tier in basically every voter's mind. It's not the same with Mary Harden-Baylor and Harden-Simmons, um, but it really just takes one person. I mean, there's there's one person who has Mary Harden-Baylor ranked number five. Uh, Ten first place votes, six, uh, they're number two on six ballots, they're number three and number four on four ballots apiece, and then the one fifth place vote. I think that, you know, there's ample opportunity to pick up a point somewhere in one of those other spots. You know, obviously, too, someone who moves Mary Harden Baylor up is then by definition saying, well, so somebody like, I don't know, Mountain Union or Whitewater, um, I feel, I felt Mountain Union or Whitewater were better than Mary Harden Baylor last week. And now I have to no longer feel that way in order to change my ballot. By the way, I mean, uh, Mountain Union is going to be playing a, a top 25 team as well. Um, so that's something else to keep an eye on. So some of those votes might shift also for 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 Mountain Union. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, things that could move. Um, Harden-Simmons just, you know, at a blush here. Um, if they were to win, obviously that's a significant deal for them. They are not in a position where they have the ability to move up super far. Obviously they can, I think they could overtake St. John's perhaps, but you know, they are in the top, they're, they're number five on three ballots, they're fourth, or they're sixth on four, they're seventh on five, and they go all the way down to, uh, looks like number 16 on a ballot or so. So obviously there are times where they can move up, but uh, they're not clearly anywhere near in the same position as Wheaton or North Central was uh, coming into that bell game on Saturday night. Moving ahead to week four, and my game to watch is number 13, Bethel, at number six, St. John's. But I'm going to wait to talk about Bethel-St. John's game until they play again in November in the MAIC title game. Instead, I'm going to talk this week about number four, Mount Union, at number 21, John Carroll. It was a good test this past weekend for Mount Union in as much as they had to have their starters out there for basically the entire game in a 31-7 win against Baldwin-Wallace. People were raving about running back DeAndre Parker on Saturday, who had 11 carries for 75 yards and two scores for John Carroll. This game is already make or break thanks to that week one loss to W&J, right? And I just don't see this being much different than any other game between a member of our top five, that elite group, and someone ranked in the 20s. Jake Floria is going to have to make some of these plays on the move, right? Because the Purple Raiders are going to bring the pressure. And if Demarius Goodwin gets 23 carries on Saturday, he likely won't even get 94 yards, let alone the 194 he got on that many carries Saturday in a win against Otterbein. And my game to watch this week is... Number seven, Harden-Simmons at number two, Mary Harden-Baylor. We just talked about it a little bit. 
Another week, another pair of championship contenders facing off in an early conference matchup. These two played in the ASC championship game in the spring with the Crusaders surviving a fourth quarter rally from the Cowboys to win the conference championship. Mary Harden Baylor has played like a number one ranked team this fall. While Harden Simmons has been steady, but not quite as thoroughly dominant as Mary Harden Baylor. These two teams know each other very well. So I expect a grinder with both defenses being well-prepared, not unlike we saw in Wheaton on Saturday. Uh, This game may well come down to which quarterback, to which quarterback Kyle King for UMHB and Jones for Harden Simmons has the better day. Not as thoroughly dominant. That's for sure. What do we take away from that game uh, between Harden Simmons and Bell Haven from Saturday? I think we take away that Harden Simmons better bring their defense this weekend. Um, That usually isn't a problem for the Cowboys when they play UMHB, but UMHB tends to throttle their offense back in the biggest games. So you get the feeling that it's going to take the Harden Simmons defense uh, creating some short fields or scoring one of uh, scoring a touchdown of their own uh, by the defense for them to leave Belton in first place in the ASC. And, you know, Harden Simmons, they got 21 points against Bellhaven. I think 23 against Sol Ross State the week before. Not really going gangbusters offensively for the Cowboys. Um, maybe it's maybe it's a thing. Maybe they're maybe they're just really vanilla in these first two games, knowing knowing this week is coming. It's hard to say, but they're going to be going up against a much better defense than they saw against Sol Ross and against Bellhaven, and they're going to have to execute a little bit better if they're going to get out of there with a win. It wouldn't be the first uh, team that we've talked about in this very podcast uh, being a little bit more vanilla uh, early in the season going into a big game. Our roulette wheel is spinning. 95 games this weekend, and it lands on number 78. Ah, number 78. That is Chapman against Claremont Mud Scripps. I feel like we should be in really good shape to preview this game and maybe give it a rivalry trophy. Does it have one already? I don't think it does, right? I don't think so. There, there are some trophies in the Skyac. The Skyac is not a trophy-heavy conference, as I'm learning. Oh, especially with Occidental out of the picture, right? The drum is out. The shoes are out, right? Um, so that's that's two big trophies out. Smudge Pot. Who's the Smudge Pot? Uh, I believe the Smudge Pot is Redlands and Cal Lutheran. It is Redlands and Cal Lutheran. There you go. Ooh, how about that? It's like we have someone in Southern California who knows stuff about stuff going on in Southern California. That's great. What can you tell us? What's your thought on uh, this particular game in Southern California? So uh, Claremont Mudscripts is they're coming in two and one. They just lost uh, to Whitworth uh, this Saturday. So lost to a good team. They defeated Pomona Pitzer in week one in the first edition of the Sixth Street Rivalry. Uh, they beat Lewis and Clark in week two. That was down here. So CMS is two and one. They have a nice little three-headed uh, running attack that they use. Um, Chapman, on the other hand, um, they struggled a little bit against George Fox. Like they got out early and it looked like they were in control of the game, but then George Fox kind of locked them down uh, defensively a little bit. Um Chapman did uh, hold on to win that game by two. Um, What I've seen of Chapman so far this season, uh, their two quarterback system has been working pretty well with uh, Johnston McIntyre and Reed Vettel. Reed Vettel actually threw his first incomplete pass uh, on Saturday. So, you know, that's, that's something he's very high efficiency quarterback. Um, Dylan Keefe is the star of Chapman's defense and he's been all all American as advertised. So, um, this is actually a non-conference game in the Sky Act uh, this year. So um, these two teams will play again in orange later on. You know, Chapman, probably heavy favorites here, but this is an opportunity for CMS to maybe, maybe, you know, stake their stake their claim as a possible contender in the Sky Act. This also seems rife for a map opportunity, right? The cross county, the cross county cup or something like that they're in separate counties they're they're not all that these schools are not all that close together uh cms is in los angeles county chapman is in orange county you take the 57 most of the way there 
One of the reasons I suggested a, a road named Trophy, of course, is because of the propensity put the in front of the number of the root number in the California uh, vernacular. The winner of this game should get, I think, the easy pass card <laughs> so that they can freely use the diamond lane to and from these campuses. All right. Well, uh, we'll take that. Uh, that is uh, that uh, that is what that that is what that's going to get. Fun fact: This weekend, CMS and Pomona Pitzer are playing home games at the same time, and I think I'm going to do my first six street double on Saturday afternoon. Is that something you get at In and Out? The six street double? Is it animal style? I don't do animal style, um, but I am I am a double double all day. It's time for on the spot. On the spot is our little bit of game show or something or a little bit of improv or I don't even know what you want to call it. It's the game where I put Greg on the spot and ask him to predict something. Greg does the same thing to me. It's Greg's turn to go first, so spot me up. All right, Pat. This week, it's week four. There are two teams that are finally going to start playing football games. And I want you to tell me if these two teams... Either are going to win, and if so, which ones? All right. Well, that's going to make the second half of On the Spot super awkward, but uh, that's good. So, the- oh, I scooped him on. The- I scooped him. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's a On the Spot daily double, which I know we're mixing our metaphors here. I got distracted, so you're going to ask. I need to uh, if either of them win. Is that the question? Let, let's let the audience know who's joining. Who's joining the 2021 season this weekend? And then yeah, um, I know this. if either of those teams are going to win. I know this well because I've looked at these same two games myself. It's Gallaudet against Greensboro. Gallaudet hasn't played, or at least they haven't played a game that counts. Uh, and then uh, St. Scholastica against Augsburg. Uh, St. Scholastica's week one game against Sewanee canceled because of COVID precautions. Uh, like I said, I know this well. Um, hmm. Uh, I believe that Augsburg wins against St. Scholastica, so that's a no for me, dog. And then um, that Gallaudet-Greensboro game, super interesting to me. Gallaudet did play a game. Not a game! And uh, it was against a uh, club team uh, from Thaddeus Stevens College, whatever that is. Um, I look at Greensboro, man. Greensboro lost to Guilford. And we've talked a little bit about Guilford on this uh, podcast so far. They lost 21-7. to They lost to Averett 48-2. Uh, it's hard it's hard to translate what Gallaudet has done into something that might turn into a W, but I'm going to think I'm going to take Gallaudet in this one. I'm very intrigued by that. I, I think, too, that I have no idea what Gallaudet's running. For a while, they were running triple option, and that was confounding some people, and uh, you know, Greensboro hasn't seen that this year anyway. I, I'm going to go ahead and take Gallaudet. Gallaudet, birthplace of the huddle. That's true. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there are two games this week that involve teams playing their first games of the season. What I was going to ask for you, and we're just going to keep this because this is fun, uh, give me a winner and then total number of points in each of those two games. We have St. Scholastica is hosting Augsburg. Still should be nice weather up in Duluth uh, on the 25th of September. Man, I feel like this is a. I feel like this is a game that Saint Scholastica could be in. Augsburg is not really a Mayak powerhouse by any stretch, um, but man, Saint Scholastica hasn't played yet. So I'm gonna go with. In this game, I'm gonna go with Saint Scholastica in a mild upset. I'm going against against your pick, Pat, and I'm gonna say Scholastica wins this game. 33 to 30. Total of 63 points. 63 points. And Gallaudet Greensboro, I think uh, this is a game where offenses might struggle a little bit. Um, I'm going to go with Greensboro in this one by a score of 17 to 7. A total of 24. I look at that game, and if I were asked to pick a game, that's one of those where it would be like 33 to 26 or something like that. You know, I'm always looking for, you know, who, where are the places where special teams might be an issue, especially early in the season for a team, right? Yes. Well, uh, point afters have been um, dicey all over the place uh, so far this season. We've had 
it seems like we've had a lot of safeties as well. Safeties have been all over the place. Bad snaps out the back of end zones all over the uh, the Delval Stevenson game, which we're not going to talk about other than just that right there, uh, seemed to be rife with those. And our spot check last week, I asked Greg to pick all the NESCAC games, and he got he got Amherst over Bates. Trinity over Colby and Wesleyan over Tufts, but missed on getting Williams, which defeated Middlebury 41 to 13. I got thrown off by the poll on that one. That's really, like I said, that is just one person's vote. You know that, right? I do now. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Last week, I put Pat on the spot and I asked him to pick two 0-2 teams to defeat teams that were 2-0. And Wisconsin Platteville won at Franklin 44 to 19 and Aurora beat Concordia Chicago. 70 to zero the full 70 that was also very helpful for people in quick hits as well we really should be scoring quick hits while we're here in the interest of time we're going to move ahead to further action not before we mentioned that central won big over nebraska wesleyan in the missouri river rivalry uh this past mm-hmm. saturday i had a thought every thought of yours is a friend so this is about Zach Boys. He's the backup quarterback for Cortland. I saw his name in uh, the Cortland Buff State game story on Saturday, and I saw that this was a guy who uh, was listed with a hometown of Buffalo, and I thought, huh, I know a football boys from Buffalo. It turns out that Zach is the son of former longtime Buff State coach Jerry Boys. Um, Ryan Bitka, who's one of the uh, who plays offensive line for Cortland, is the son of Terry Bitka, longtime assistant coach, uh, and currently the defensive coordinator and associate head coach at Buff State. And then uh, Ryan's sister Emily is the uh, the uh, assistant women's lacrosse coach at Cortland. So this like Cortland's Buff State little mix there is is pretty good if you're a Cortland fan. Maybe not if you're a Buff State fan because. I don't even have that score in front of me. It was like 69 to 18, something like that. I'd say it was in like the 56 to 7 range. But yeah, it was it, it was it was all Red Dragons all day. All Red Dragons all day, 58 to 9. But so Jerry Boy's son doesn't go to play football at Buff State. He goes to Portland State and gets a significant amount of playing time and gets some passes in as Portland blows the doors off the Bengals. This week, Eastern University announced that they will be adding football in 2023 and will play in the Middle Atlantic Conference, bringing the total number of Division III football programs to 240 and the number of teams in the MAC to 12. Conference championship games were a fun byproduct of the spring 2021 season. I'm curious to see if the MAC will begin to use a championship game model and if other conferences, like maybe the PAC, would follow suit in the future. The pack is is one short of a full twelve pack at the moment, right? They are, but can you can you have just eleven? You mean you? I don't know. You can have eleven teams. Don't know what to do with them. They do what the well, Mac is wind, doing. You right wind now. up getting rid of one because of reasons. Oh, well, and we're going somewhere else now. All of a sudden, I want to talk about something else that happened on Saturday. Pretty interesting thing happened at Washington and Jefferson this past weekend when they chose to celebrate the uh, and remember their trip to the 1922 Rose Bowl. I, if you're not uh, super up on the history of some Division three schools, there are D3 schools that played at the major college level and got invites to some of these bowl games. Uh, W&J played in that Rose Bowl, the only scoreless tie, a scoreless tie between W&J and Cal. You know, the Golden Bears, you know, the folks in Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera. It's one of the few times I get to plug my alma mater on this podcast. Catholic went to the Orange Bowl in 1936. They beat Old Miss 20 to 19, and they played in a scoreless tie in the Sun Bowl in 1948. But what WJ did on Saturday, uh, along with the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, they uh, dedicated an official state marker. You've seen these things, right? Picture a big plaque with some words on it, right? To honor Charles West, who was. the quarterback on this WJ team, class of 1924, he was the first black quarterback to play in the Rose Bowl, and he played, uh, like I said, in that uh, 1922 game between WJ and Cal. So they installed this historical marker. They had living descendants of Charles West there. Charles West went on to be a very successful uh, MD, a doctor. Uh, there's much more about that that you can read if you want to go look up Charles West, WJ quarterback. Pretty cool stuff, and uh, I always love when schools have this 
deep, deep back history, in this case, basically 100 years ago, to celebrate. And I'm sure someday I'll be in Washington, PA again. I seem to drive through there every couple of years, and I will definitely be stopping and going to take a look for this. Pretty cool. Almost two years ago to the day, Northwest Conference powers Linfield and Whitworth came down to Southern California, and both were defeated almost simultaneously by Redlands and Chapman, respectively. Uh, Both were back in California on Saturday, and both had much happier uh, flights home. Whitworth handled Claremont Mudscripts 31-15, and Linfield exercised some demons over at Ted Runner Stadium with a 51-10 thrashing of Redlands. Along with Chapman surviving George Fox by just two points on Saturday, power balance on Division III's West Coast uh, may be swinging back to the north a little bit. I'm going to talk about some thoughts I have about teams who whose fans I heard begging for votes this weekend. I've heard from people representing or fans of Albion and UW-Eau Claire and Merchant Marine. Merchant Marine. Um, you know, at this point, folks, there are 58 unbeaten teams, and that doesn't even count Gallaudet and St. Scholastica also unbeaten. Uh, so let's just take it easy for a little bit, all right? If you're one of those teams looking for votes, here's what I want you to do. Go circle the best team on your schedule. So is that team currently in our top 25? Uh, are they getting votes? Great. If that's true, okay, go back, go go beat them and then get back to us. If they're not uh, a top 25 team or they're not getting any votes and you're not playing anyone all year who is getting votes, well, okay, there's always the playoffs, right? Um, Greg, what I need to hear from you is whether any of those three teams I mentioned before, Albion, UW-Eau Claire, and Merchant Marine, have any of your potential balloting energy that you mentioned on the last pod. Interestingly enough, Eau Claire is going to make the trip over to Sprinkle Sprandle Stadium uh, to take on Albion this Saturday, and I just had to throw that in there because when you get a chance to say Sprinkle Sprandle Stadium, you have to take it. Always take your Sprinkle Um, Sprandles. Exactly. So, you know, those two teams in particular are going to have a chance to show their hands this weekend, but neither of those teams are getting votes. Neither of those teams are in the poll. So they don't fit any of those categories that you talked about. You know, the thing with balloting momentum is that you've got to get on some ballots first, and that's your signal that you're on the radar for most voters. Um, then you need to keep winning and you need to outlast all of the loss column attrition that happens. Like you mentioned, there are 58 undefeated teams still. But if you wind up being one of the last 15 or 20 undefeated teams in the division, you're probably going to find yourself in the top 25. But to really crack into that top 15, you need some recent history of beating other top 15s, probably top 15 teams, probably in the playoffs. Uh, we heard Jeff Thorne earlier talk about getting that respect from voters or using that poll position as a motivator. And if that's what your team needs for fuel, use it. Dominate. Don't give the voters a choice. But also know that voters can only score a team against who you're playing and who you're beating. If you're 3-0 against teams that are 0-3, and one and two, the voters probably need to see more. And I have heard from people who say, well, we can only play the teams who are on our schedule. And then what I say back to them is like, you know, those, those teams that we're voting for are also only playing the teams on their schedule, and we are evaluating them based on that. I'm going to go a step further even than the ranked or receiving votes caveat. How about playoff success? So if your conference hasn't had success in the playoffs and your non-conference opponents come from conferences that haven't had success in the playoffs, what measuring stick are, are voters supposed to use in order to put you in the top 25? 239 teams currently in Division Three football, for goodness sake. I'm going to pull from the Keith McMillan book of maxims and it says here, chapter three, verse seven, it is twice as hard to make the top 25 in division three as it is in division one FBS because there are twice as many schools. Verse eight is we really should have a top 50 in order for it to be like the division one poll. I also am not sitting for a a top 50. I don't have that kind of time. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 286, released on September 20th, 2021. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout this football season. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, fellow alumnus about the show. And you can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. True story. I was climbing the stairs uh, up to the press box at Wheaton uh, at the about midway through the second quarter when it was no longer fruitful for me to try to take photos down at the field. I went back up to the press box and someone said as I'm walking by, hey, love the podcast. Listen every week.
And what I should have said in return was, tell a friend. But I didn't. I was just very happy that someone said a nice thing. Anyway, you can reach us to talk more about Division Three football by talking to us as we walk by in the stands. Or going on Twitter and using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find all of them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan. And thanks to my co-host, Greg Thomas. I should really thank Sports Information Director Chris Lindecki at Whitewater especially. Uh, he dropped off for me a parking pass, which is super important at very few Division Three venues, but it's important at Whitewater. And then also Huge. my uh, my media credential at the hotel uh, in town on Friday night. So that was two fewer things I didn't have to deal with. And then I mentioned earlier, I went through the stadium on my run. Someone tried to stop me, which is like, it's three hours before game time. Uh, there is nobody in the stadium. Uh, it is, you know, the gates are open. And the guy says, you can't do that. And I'm like, I mean, I appreciate that. I, I did this the last time I was here. And then he stopped and looked at me and he said, oh, oh, well, you, you could go. It's a, <laughs> he recognized me. I was like, all I did was, my only thing was I promise I did not like do the whole, don't you know who I am thing? Because I'm just some slob going for a run and lucky to make 11 minute miles. Thank you, Joe Carollo, Assistant Athletic Director at UW-Whitewater, for recognizing me and letting me run through the stadium. He could have told you about the swamp, though. There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.